Every time we do that song, I feel like, man, we can just go home after that. That, that was... As we have sung these songs today, and we've worshipped God with our music, um, I am reminded, intentionally, I mean, we choose these songs on purpose, but I'm reminded that there is no one like our God. He is great. He is over and above and beyond and other. He is holy. And there is no other sovereign in all the universe. In other words, it is only God. He is in charge. He rules over the rulers. He rules over everything. The stars and the microbes all submit to Him. The space dust floating out there in the cosmos does nothing outside of what God has ordained. This is the God we serve. With that in mind, I want to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 20. We're continuing in our Dear Theophilus series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And I want to read to you the text that we'll be studying today. In Luke chapter 20, we'll be reading verses 20 to 26 together. I would invite you to follow along with me. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Luke writes this. Keeping a close, a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. Let me read that again so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me, a, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the living word, Jesus, whom you sent to walk among us, to live as one of us, to face every temptation even as we do, and yet to be without sin, so that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, could take our place in judgment and condemnation, dying on a cross for our sins, that we might become alive in him that we might become your righteousness father move us today make your word live to us help us to grasp what luke is saying help us to grasp what jesus is saying in this account and father help us by your spirit to understand rightly how to apply it to our lives today that we might be transformed by it. Guide me as I present this, but may all who hear it hear only you as your spirit illumines your word to us. We pray this in the name of your precious son. Amen. Well, as we look at Luke chapter 20, we are uh, we're coming to the culmination of the story. We know, because hopefully we've read ahead, and if nothing else, you've probably seen the movies on television, so you know how the story ends, more or less. Jesus now in Jerusalem is approaching the cross. He's approaching Calvary. And everything will seem to, 
according to our temporal perception of reality, it will seem to come to a screeching halt at the cross. And yet, as we will see in the the next several chapters, there is a big difference, a big difference between what we see as reality and what actually is reality. Jesus has, he has been walking through this earthly ministry, has taught with authority. He has demonstrated his authority with miraculous signs and healing. He's done amazing things. He has kept, this maybe is the most amazing thing of all, we don't think of it this way, but he has kept the law perfectly. No one else ever in the history of humanity ever did that. Jesus, fully human, lived perfectly, keeping all of God's commands without ever stumbling, without, not, not just without rebellion, but without error, without ever making a mistake. How many days can we get through breakfast without accidentally stumbling into sin? If you can get through lunch, you're better than me. If you can get through the day, I, I don't even know who you are. I just That's crazy. Jesus went through his entire earthly ministry without ever once tripping up, giving in to temptation, having thoughts that dishonored God. I'm blown away by that. But it's because of that that he's able to do what he's come to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. We'll see him do that in a few chapters when he goes to the cross on our behalf. For now, he's approaching there. For the last many chapters, since about chapter 9, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. His very specific plan has been to move out of the teaching ministry that took place in Galilee and in the area surrounding into his actual purpose to save sinners. Now that he's gotten to Jerusalem, he came in recognized by the people as the king sent by God, as the Messiah, the Christ as we call it. And as he gets there, they shout, blessed is the one, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They acknowledge him. The leaders are riled up. The religious leaders, the, the political leaders, they are fired up. He is upsetting everything now. He can't tolerate it. He goes in and he clears out the temple. He demonstrates the authority. This is my house. You've defiled it. No more. We're done. Then he tells a parable that the Pharisees and the other religious leaders know is pointed toward them. They recognize it. He has to be killed immediately. They've questioned his authority. He's established that his authority is beyond theirs. And now they send spies to try and trap him. Notice in this story a couple of things. Number one, they're still trying to question his authority. They're still trying to show that he is not who he says. They're trying to trick him, to trap him. If he gets this wrong, then it will undermine his authority with the people. But recognize also, they're using the the authority of the government to do it. Their hope is to take the tension between the people. The Jewish people hate the Romans. They've been oppressed by them. They feel like they should not be paying taxes to the Romans. The Romans would have these special taxes along with a variety of other things. Governments are good, really good, at taxing. right? That's what governments do. And the Jewish people are very bothered by that for a variety of reasons, most of which aren't all that dissimilar to why you and I tend to not like paying taxes. So they're going to use this tension between Israel and Rome to try to trick him, to trap him. If he says, oh yeah, we have to pay taxes, then the Jews are going to give up on him. 
wait a minute, he's here to deliver us. If he's the Messiah, when he comes to Jerusalem, his job is to overthrow Rome, to establish the kingdom of Israel. The glory of Israel, Israel will rise and will be set free. That's what the Messiah is here for. If he says, go pay your taxes, you are subject to Rome. Oh, we've got him. But if he says, don't pay your taxes, now he's fostering rebellion against Rome. Now we can bring the Roman authorities in, and he's really in trouble. Either way, he loses. <laughs> How many of you know Jesus never loses? They should have figured this out by now. They're going to figure it out soon. They're going to give up trying to have tricks, and they're just going to, we're going to wipe him out. We're done. We can't, we can't trick him, so let's, let's buy a traitor. That's coming soon. Be patient. But in this particular section... In their attempts to trap him, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach. Think about that for just a moment in your own life. How many times do we run into struggles, we run into difficulties, we run into mistreatment or betrayal, and we think, oh, poor me, God, deliver me from this. Jesus instead says, this is a chance for me to teach some things. I'm not worried because I know where I'm going. I know who's actually in charge here, so I can't lose. In the meantime, let me answer wisely in a way that honors God and teaches his people. So notice what happens as he, uh, as he here in this section, addresses them. They try to trap him with this tax question. He poses a question to them and uses their answer. Right? Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. After this, and we'll pick this up next week, they start to trap him in the idea of the resurrection. Now it's couched in marriage, but it's really about the resurrection. So here we see those who are uh, related to the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees trying to trap him. They, that's where those spies came from. But in this next section, 27 and following, the Sadducees approach him. The Pharisees are like, well, we, we can't get them. Our spies aren't even working. So the Sadducees, who are not in this, of the same cloth as the Pharisees, they don't, they're much more liberal in their interpretation of the Scriptures. So the Pharisees, are, 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 they're, they're considered the conservative group here. They believe in the Scriptures. They believe that the Scriptures should be taken literally, that they're authoritative. And they believe it so much that they've added to it. They've added extra rules and laws. The Sadducees are kind of the other side of the coin here. They, they kind of go below the line. Here's what the scripture says, but you know, maybe it doesn't really mean what we think it means. So resurrection, that's kind of supernatural and weird. So we're going to get rid of that. We don't believe in resurrection. So they're more the intellectuals. They're a little more respected among the Greeks because they think like the world. So they approach it, we're going to trap him in resurrection. And he answers wisely and they can't handle it. And then in verse 41 and following, Jesus addresses his own identity, the identity of the Messiah. In this entire passage, through the end of 20, and, and really all through chapter 21, what we see is this, this general context of Jesus showing a very clear division a delineation, if you will, between perception and reality, between what seems real and what is real, between what we experience now in this moment and what is actually eternal and lasting and true. Because there's so much in it, we're just going to take this piece and we're going to look at this particular thing because everybody loves it when the preacher talks about politics, right? That's always exciting. I can tell you one guy who doesn't, the guy standing up here. But there is a very clear reality that we need to grasp that has some very uh, practical implications for us. The core reality is this, you can see it in your program or on the screen. Those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. I want to read that again so that you get it, and I'll probably read it again after that. Those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. Now, I read it twice so that you can get it in your head. I'm going to read it another time because I know you don't like it. I don't like it either. 
Those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. Maybe we should say it together. Those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. Now, I've got to tell you, I think that's probably the bit most difficult thing for human beings in general. Our issue with the Bible is almost never that it's hard to understand. We often couch it that way. But it's that the stuff that we do understand, we don't like. God says, do this, don't do that. And we're like, but I want to do that. And I don't want to do that. The, the crux issue in all of the universe, for all of us to grasp, is very simple. It's that he is God and I am not. When we come to terms with that, everything else starts to come together. It's an issue of authority and submission. Now, as we go through this, I, I want you to have an understanding in your minds. There is no part of creation that doesn't follow a pattern of authority and submission. Now, we think of that in terms of human relations, and that's pretty normal for us, right? You have a boss, you submit to the boss, or you don't, and you get fired, or you get doc pay. If you're in the military, or you've been in the military, you understand how that works, right? That's one of the best things that, that makes military a great illustration for biblical things. That's why the Bible uses it, that's why I use it, because when you get told what to do in the military, it's not really a discussion. It's not a debate. Your drill sergeant in basic was not interested in your opinion. And when you're in combat and you decide you're going to do your thing instead of your superior's thing, people die. We have to understand this. But it's more than human relations. Even when we look at the galaxies, we live in a solar system, a tiny little solar system, in a relatively small galaxy that is one among countless galaxies. We can't even begin to figure out the math here in this room. If you can, you probably should be making more money. But the, the reality of it is we live in a solar system where we have a hub in our sun and all of the planets submit to that authority. They live in an orbit around the sun. They have a set path. They don't vary from that path. They can't. This is how the cosmos works. When you get down into, into small, small particles, when you look at an atom, the way it's made up has a nucleus that does the same thing. It's the authority. And those electrons, they have to orbit that nucleus according to that authority. And they don't vary. They can't. It changes everything when we get outside of that authority and submission concept. So with that in mind, when we look at this passage, understand that all of the universe operates this way. Imagine an orchestra where everybody does their own thing and doesn't submit to the authority of the conductor or the authority of the music that they're playing. It's chaos. Nobody likes that. Maybe some jazz people, but you know, that doesn't count. The reality of life is authority and submission. I think I've beaten that horse enough. Let's get into this. So as we see this context of, of reality versus perception, Jesus takes these people to that very question. You're focused on the temporal authority of Caesar when you need to be focused on the eternal authority of God. We need to have a bigger picture. Interestingly, he draws their attention to the coin, the denarius. Show me that piece of money. Whose picture is on it? Whose image does it bear? The coin bears the image of Caesar. So who does it belong to? You tell me. That didn't sound confident. Tell me again. Tell me a little louder. Better. Okay, so if the coin bearing the image of Caesar belongs to Caesar, and all of us are created bearing the image of God, to whom do we belong? Not confident. Try again. Yeah, this is a pretty basic thing, right? So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. 
Not hard math, is it? What belongs to Caesar? Your taxes, your respect, your submission in various aspects. What belongs to God? You can probably guess, right? Just tell me. What do, what, what do you think belongs to God? Everything. Everything. I bear his image. I belong to him. I am the taxes owed to God. My whole life, every aspect of me, everything belongs to God. When we start with that as our foundation, authority and submission, and we understand that we belong to him, the rest of this becomes pretty simple. All right, let's, let's just jump right into the points here so I don't get too far off and get excited. Sometimes I'm an excitable boy. Notice this. All authority must be respected by Christ followers. All authority must be respected by Christ followers. Now, that's easy on paper. It's harder in real life. Let's make sure that we get it. Turn, if you would, to... Um, let's... I'm going to take these out of the order I have written here. You wouldn't know that because you don't have my notes. But let's jump to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Oh man, we could read this whole book. Let's start with verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Some translations may say honor the king. That's a pretty good three-legged stool for us to stand on. Love the family of God. Fear the God of creation. Honor the king. You do that, you've got a pretty well put together life. Turn back, if you would, to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Now, as Peter was talking about this, he wanted, he wanted the behavior, the life of the Christ follower to be an example to the world, to silence the foolish talk, the accusations of lawlessness against the church. That was a problem in, in, the, Roman, uh, in the Roman culture. Christians were accused of a lot of things. They were primarily accused of being atheists, which is an interesting thing. But, but we who followed Christ were accused of being atheists because we didn't believe in and worship the gods that were recognized by the state. Therefore, we just were considered unbelievers, those who don't believe in anything, which was frowned upon and considered in many circles illegal, depending on who your particular governor was. We didn't recognize Caesar as God, which was becoming a thing. That wasn't always a thing, but it was becoming a thing where Caesar had elevated himself to God so you have this arrogant, self-absorbed ruler who believes that he is divine, that he is deity. Well, if we don't believe that as well, then we are usurping his authority. We are opposing the state. That was an accusation that was launched against us. It went farther. We were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper. We were accused of all sorts of crazy things. Peter said, do this, live this way, so that those who see you will not be able to make these foolish accusations. They will see your life and will glorify God. Sounds a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew 5. So in Romans chapter 13, looking at the first, um, for, uh, the first seven verses here. 
Paul writes this to the Roman church. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Let me just pause here. I'll come back to this in just a moment. But that statement is very often, if you are on the internet at all, you'll see a lot of articles talking about why that is a specifically racist, um, you know, white privilege statement. It's a, whole, uh, it's a whole oppressive thing. It's not. We'll talk about it in a few minutes. But I uh, just want you to recognize that just by saying, by reading that verse, there are many who will be offended. We still submit to God's authority one way or another. But here's what it says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been, has, have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All authority must be respected by Christ followers. Paul, as he writes to Titus in chapter 3 of his book, says the same thing. Remember to teach everybody. Remind them to submit to the authorities. This is a big deal. I think sometimes as Christians we treat it as not a big deal. We want to separate church and state in our own lives. That's not how this works. There is no separation in our lives. The Christian is a whole person under the authority, the headship, the governance of Christ. So we can't say, well, here's my Christian life, and here's my civic life. Here's my church life, and here's my, my private life. It doesn't work that way. It's just one life. And you're either living it, submitted to God, or you're not. If you are a Christ follower, we must always respect authority. As we said, those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. Now this is an interesting concept. Jesus submitted to authority. Watch what happens as you go through the Gospels. As we've, as we've journeyed through Luke, if you're with us on Wednesday nights, we're journeying, journeying through Mark. That's a, an unusually hard word. That surprised me. And what we see as we watch it is Jesus is accused of a lot of things, but he doesn't break the law. He understands the law. He does violate certain people's expectations of how the law should be kept, but Jesus is beyond that. He does not, even when he faces Pilate, he does not reject that authority. That's an important thing for us to recognize when we belong to Christ, we submit to authority as he did. We submit to authority because he did, but we also submit to authority in the same way that he did. Notice this. God is the giver of authority. All authority must be respected by Christ's followers because God is the giver of authority. We just read uh, from Peter and from Paul both that every authority has been established by God. God alone gives authority Human authority is delegated by him and derivative of him. God has all authority, therefore he's able to delegate. And all of us who have some semblance of authority, it's derivative of God. It's a reflection of God's authority. All things 
all people, all things in creation, exist to point to Him, to give glory to Him. So when we see anybody holding any authority, the job of that authority, the reason that they have it, is to point to God. Government exists to restrain evil. We just read that. To punish wrongdoers, to commend those who do right. That's the role of government. That's an important thing. But it all points to the, the nature and character of God. Now, that presents kind of a problem when we consider with any amount of depth unjust government, right? Does that make sense? You can nod your head if that makes sense to you, that you get it. There's times that that just doesn't make sense. How do I submit to authority if Adolf Hitler is in charge? If Idi Amin or, or Osama bin Laden are in charge, how do I submit to that authority as a Christian under that regime? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrestled with that. As a pastor and a pacifist, he was put to death, he was executed for attempting assassination of Adolf Hitler, one of many attempts. How did he come to that conclusion? Now, I'm not suggesting that what Bonhoeffer did was right or wrong, but that's the conclusion he came to. What about Martin Luther King? He defied authority in nonviolent protest, in civil disobedience. Was that wrong? Well, we know that there was unjust, systemic racism that needed to be dealt with. There are some issues that we need to look at. Now, we're not going to have time to develop all of that today, but we need to recognize that God is the giver of authority. In fact, in John 19, when Jesus is facing Pilate, rather than saying, you have no power over me, what he said to Pilate was, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you by God. Jesus knows that he's about to be executed, and Pilate is part of that. This is the authority that you have to do what you're about to do, this wrong thing you're about to do, it comes from God. So, wait, Zeiger, are you telling me that Hitler was put in place by God? Are you telling me that Ming the Merciless was put in place by God? That the horrific kings of Assyria and Babylon were put in place by God? That Pharaoh was put in place by God? How can this be? God is sovereign. Hopefully by the time we get to the end here, you'll get a little bit of a grasp of that. But just because God has put an authority in place does not mean, does not mean that God is pleased with everything that that authority figure does. Just because God has established a particular government for whatever sovereign purpose he has, be that a democracy, an autocracy, whatever it is, Whatever that government is, the Soviet Union, pick it. Just because God has put them in place, or if you prefer, allowed them to be in place, it's a little passive for my taste, but I, I get the sensitivity about it. Just because God has established that particular government does not mean that God approves of what that government is doing. How do we reconcile that? If all authority must be respected by Christ followers and God is the giver of authority that puts us in a bit of attention, the solution is understanding the eternal reality, the bigger perspective, not just what we see. That's the problem they were facing in Luke 20. They saw this, this small space that we're in, in time and place, and God sees everything. He sees the whole big thing. Notice this. All authority must be respected by Christ followers, but God is the pinnacle of authority. God is the pinnacle of authority. He is the ultimate. All authority is given by God because all authority belongs to God. He is God. He's the ultimate. Therefore, we obey God first. Higher authority means higher priority. That's not really hard for us to figure out in, in other situations. If you're at home and your mom and dad have put your older brother in charge of you, and you need to do what your older brother says, then 
out respect for mom and dad because of their delegated, derived authority, you obey, you submit to, even if you don't like it, your older brother because of that. But what happens when mom and dad tell you something different than your older brother does? Pretty simple. I'm doing what mom and dad said. That's where your power comes from. Therefore, I don't have to listen to you anymore. You're not the boss of me. Just kidding. But the reality of it is we, we respect the higher authority. If you are in the military and you're a private and a sergeant tells you to do something, you do it. But if a lieutenant tells you to do something different than the sergeant tells you to do, that's a higher authority, particularly if it's in your chain of command. So we need to be judicious in our obedience based on the level of authority. Our level of submission must be commensurate to the level of authority. Therefore, when God has established an authority and that authority does what does not honor and please God, they are operating outside of that authority. That doesn't mean that we get to decide because we don't like their politics that they're clearly ungodly, right? I've seen that so much over the last 50 years, but, but really I saw that a lot recently in, in, the, in the last administration in the U.S. and in the current administration. Depending on what side of the aisle you happen to f- fall on, everything that ever went wrong in the world was Barack Obama's fault, right? I just saw John Chris make a joke about that from 2015. So, you know, Hurricane Katrina is probably somehow his fault. If, you know, if I run into a fire hydrant with my car, it's Barack Obama's fault. Now we see the same kind of thing with Donald Trump. Everything that could possibly be wrong with the United States or with the world, it's Donald Trump. We haven't had enough rain this summer. My pastures aren't growing. It's Donald Trump. Man, I can't get out of debt. It's Donald Trump. Guys, it doesn't matter who the president is. Respect the office of president. Respect the government that's in place. (laughs) One way or another, Let's not get their authority or their power and ability any more, let's not give it any more weight than it actually has. God is in control. Therefore, we submit to God first and foremost. We submit to every other authority underneath that umbrella. Because at some point, understand this if you live in America, at some point, the president or the congressman, or the judge, will be the guy you think is the wrong guy. Always going to be that. This time it might be my guy. This time it might be your guy. Another time it might be nobody's guy. None of us like him, but it is how it is. Earthly authority changes. Heavenly authority never does. How do we handle wicked authority? We submit it to God's authority. God is the giver of authority. God is the pinnacle of authority. He is the highest of all. There's a a lot of scriptures I'd like for you to see, but I'm going to just have you turn to Acts chapter 4 just to make sure you understand how the apostles handled this. Acts comes right after Luke. Chapters 4 and 5 of Acts are some stories that are fairly familiar for most folks. In chapter 4, we see Peter and John uh, who are brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, uh, because they have been preaching the gospel of Christ. And as we've already seen in Luke, we haven't even gotten to Acts yet, it's not a popular thing among the leaders. So let's pick up with Acts chapter 4. Let's start with, and I want to read the whole thing, but let me just cut to the chase. Um, Peter and John are preaching, they're having a great response, uh, and they get arrested, they get put into jail before this preaching. Let's pick up with verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Sound familiar? It should remind you of what we saw last week when they were questioning Jesus. Tell me by what authority you're doing this. Authority is always the question. 
verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, they had healed a lame man, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Ding, 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 ding. If you were here last week, you should recognize that. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given, for, given to mankind by which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Man, I want to preach that verse, but I'm going to wait. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin. Note this verse. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. This is the ruling council. This is the authority, the earthly human authority. Verse 18 then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You know, it's as if Peter and John are saying to them, we need to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We need to give to the Sanhedrin what belongs to the Sanhedrin. And we need to give to God what is God's. As for us, verse 20, <laughs> uh, let me back up here, 19. Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Now, in Chapter 5, we see a similar story, and Peter again in, in verse 29 says, Listen, we, we need to obey God, not human beings. We do need to obey human beings out of reverence. Notice, this is the same Peter that wrote in 1 Peter 2, Submit to the human authorities. But not at the expense of obeying God. There are things that are simply sinful. We don't do those things. It doesn't matter if the government comes out and says, you know what, we're going to reinstitute slavery. Well, I guess we have to submit to the authority of the government. No. Wrong is wrong. We submit to God's authority first. Period. It doesn't matter when the government has legalized something that is wrong. We don't participate because it's wrong. And we oppose it. We have a unique situation in our, uh, in our Republican democracy that we have here. Because we are the government. We have a voice. That's not the case that they're, that they're reading here. They don't get a vote. You and I do. Our job's a lot easier. Because we're part of it. They didn't get to go say, hey, Caesar, um, can I change your mind here? Because I'm not really buying what you're doing. They didn't get that opportunity. They had to submit without a voice, treated unjustly and oppressed. And in that setting, Paul, Peter, Jesus, all say, submit to honor God for God's sake. I'm over my time here. I want to make sure that we're getting through this so all authority must be respected by Christ followers because God is the giver of authority, but God is also the pinnacle of authority. Notice this, all authority must fulfill God's purpose. 
I'm going to try to move a little quicker as we go along here. All authority must fulfill God's purpose. God directs both human and divine authority. This is why those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. All authority must fulfill God's purpose. Check this out. God uses his people to influence earthly authorities. God uses his people to influence earthly authorities. Now we saw Peter command that we, that we submit to the authorities, that we live in a way that respects and obeys authority so that the foolish talk of foolish people would be silenced. There's an influence there. In Matthew 5, we're called to be salt and light in the world around us. There's an influence of the salt and light. Jesus wants his people not ever to be isolationists. We don't just get in this little insular box that we call church and we hang out with Christian people doing Christian things all the time. He wants us to be in the world, but not to be of the world. Not to be like the world. We don't talk like the world. We don't walk like the world. We don't eat and drink like the world. We don't conduct our, our interpersonal relationships like the world. And we don't view authority like the world. We're different. And he's called us to influence the world around us. We see that in Matthew 5. Proverbs 29.2 says that when the when the righteous prosper, the people are blessed. Not when the wicked prosper. When we, as Christ followers, wield the authority of Christ, and we live out the character of Christ, in other words, we reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships, then we become salt and light in the world around us. We have an influence. It is important for Christ followers to be engaged in the culture, to be engaged in the civic government. We need to bring the voice of God into the authorities of the world. Some of you here maybe are being called to run for office. Maybe you're being called who knows, to Congress or even to be president. We could have the next, not the next president probably, but we, we could have the president come out of here. But one way or another, we're called to influence. God uses his people to influence earthly authorities. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go ahead and turn there with me. If you're in Acts, it's just a little bit to the right past Romans. 2 Corinthians, not first, it'll confuse you if you go there. Chapter 5. God has given us a job to be ambassadors. Ambassadors are not citizens of the land where they live. They're citizens of another land. But they represent that kingdom in the kingdom in which they dwell. We live here on earth, among humanity, but we're not of this kingdom. We represent another kingdom here. I'm going to pick up with uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Influence. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, not even Caesar, not even the president. Not even the police officer who pulled me over when I wasn't doing anything wrong. And I'm sure it's because I was driving that red car. It doesn't matter how you got profiled. 
Regardless of that, we don't view people, we don't view those who do us wrong, we don't view our boss at work, no matter how wretched they may be, from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, note this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You and I, in every moment of every day, in every relationship that we have been given, have been called to reflect the reality of Christ so that the world, apart from God, might be reconciled to God. Because there's only one outcome, or there are two choices here. Only two ways that the story ends. Either we fall on the stone of Christ and are broken to pieces and receive him, or he falls on us and we are crushed in judgment and destruction. If we care about people, if we recognize God's authority in our lives, we must, we must be influencers in the world around us. All authority must fulfill God's purpose. Note also, God uses earthly authorities to influence his people. God uses earthly authorities to influence his people. Proverbs 21.1 says that God directs the king's heart. It's like a water course that God's steering. Whoever is in charge, whoever is in charge, whatever situation it is, God steers them where he wants them to go. This is why we're commanded to pray for those who are leading us. We don't pray just for Christian politicians. We don't pray just for church leaders. We pray for all those who are in authority. Because even if you completely reject God, He's still God. He still directs the course of the king. In fact, in... Uh, <laughs> In Jeremiah 25, you don't have to turn there, but you can check it out later. It's listed for you in your program. Jeremiah 25, and then it's reiterated or, or clarified in chapter 29. We see that God uses the wicked kings of the world, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon in particular, to bring about his purposes in his people. God uses earthly authorities to influence his people. In Romans 9, he talks about hardening the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was used to bring about God's purposes in Israel. Those who are lost are used to clarify for those who are being saved the mercies of God. I will have you turn to Habakkuk chapter 1, mostly because no, no, nobody knows where Habakkuk is, and so it seems important. And because Suzanne just mentioned it recently, it got me excited. So if you're in Luke, you're going to turn back to the left. Habakkuk is among the minor prophets, in other words, the smaller books of the prophets. So if you get to like Daniel and Ezekiel, you've gone too far. Okay. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. I'll give you just a moment. Small book. These are all small books in this portion of Scripture. We're going to take a look at verses 5 through 11. Things are not going well for Israel, to say the least. Habakkuk's not happy. So he launches a complaint. But notice how God responds to his first complaint. Starting with verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people. 
So God knows he's using ungodly people, right? He knows this is a wicked nation. He's doing it anyway. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. All things God hates, by the way. God's very unhappy with everything about Babylon. Their hordes advance like a wild desert, like a desert wind and gather poison. I'm going to try reading the actual words here. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Interestingly, God doesn't answer. He's so good at this. He doesn't answer Habakkuk the way Habakkuk wants to be answered. He says, guess what? I'm going to do something you wouldn't even believe. I'm going to raise up the wicked. And that's the end of the answer. Jeremiah clarifies, he raises up Babylon to judge Israel, to do in God's people what needs to be done, to purge and to purify. You and I have to deal with unjust authorities to help us become more like Christ. Christ suffered unjustly. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. If we're going to become like him, if we're going to identify with him, we need to understand fully what it means to suffer unjustly, to be treated unfairly, to deal with the wicked, and to watch God use the wicked to influence his people. All authority must fulfill God's purpose. Notice this, all authority must yield to eternal reality. All authority must yield to eternal reality. That's the whole context of this passage. Everything from, from this point, from 2020 through chapter uh, 21, we see this entire piece looking at the difference between temporal perception and eternal reality. All authority must yield to eternal reality. Authority must be seen through an eternal perspective of reality. When we do, we'll understand why and how those who belong to Christ submit to authority as he did. All authority must yield to eternal reality. The kingdom of God is our present citizenship. The kingdom of God is our present citizenship. If you belong to Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. This is not your home you're just a passing through, as the song says. It's not where you belong. You are a citizen of another kingdom. As we just saw in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are here to be ambassadors. Philippians 3.20 says that we are citizens of heaven. In Colossians 3, in the first few verses there, Paul writes to the Colossians, Look, since you have been raised with Christ... Set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated in the heavenlies. That's where you belong. That's where you are. That's, you are with him. You're a citizen of heaven. You need to view life through that lens. The kingdom of God is our present citizenship. But notice also that the kingdom of God is our future experience. We don't experience it now as we will. The kingdom of God is our present citizenship, but it's our future experience. Jesus will one day rule perfectly as eternal reality becomes present experience. Heaven is our future government. Since you're still in Habakkuk, go a little bit to the left of there, where the books get a little bigger. They're easier to find. To the book of Isaiah. You may have a Christmas card stuck here because it seems to come up a lot at Christmas time. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9, which is only a little bit about Christmas and the first advent, and a lot about the second advent. And while I desperately want to read a lot of scriptures, I've got this and one more we're going to see 
and I'm going to shorten it. Isaiah chapter 9. Speaking of the kingdom that will come, this sure and certain future for God's people, Isaiah writes, starting with verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he, the Lord, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he'll honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. You might recognize that as where Jesus is from. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, speaking as if it is already fulfilled of that which is yet to come. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Turn all the way to the back of the book, to the book of Revelation. As Jesus reveals future things to John the Beloved. Go to Revelation chapter 1. Actually, let's, we'll skip that. We'll go straight to Revelation 21 for the sake of time. Jesus is revealing this future kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, when God wipes out all evil, all sin, all hardship, all sickness, all oppression, and rules directly. Interestingly, it's not a democracy. Look at this in chapter 21. I'm sorry, yes, chapter 21. Starting with verse 1. <clears throat> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first, first heaven and first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Jump down to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the, nation, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The kingdom of God is our present citizenship, but be assured that it is our future experience. Wrapping this up. 
If I'm to rightly understand and relate to God, I must understand and rightly relate to authority in this world. For he has given it as an illustration of his nature and proving ground of our faith. When I refuse to submit to authority, I refuse to submit to God. Rebellion against God is sin. Therefore, I cannot live for God while disrespecting earthly authorities. For those who belong to Christ, submit to authority as he did. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is 